this uh, my name is andy moore and i'm joined by my other two co-hosts just like every week scott nelson hello sir what's up dude bailey perkins how are you hello, hello everybody so our last episode today is june 5th that we are recording this our last episode was two weeks ago whatever that was and the 22nd i guess of may uh, last week was civics con which was our virtual civics convention and so we skipped it for the podcast. And in the meantime, America is presumably in the midst of a awakening, reawakening, something, a struggle, uh, confronting our relationship with race relations in America. And it has been an illuminating, fascinating week or so. Um, as we were preparing for this episode, clearly we are going to talk about the issues of race in America and particularly how it relates to politics. Uh, racism is a political issue. Structural racism is a political issue. These intersect with policy uh, into a, a, you know, a big mishmash of, I think for a lot of Americans confronting our history and where we're at, the decisions are made, how policies are made, how our country and our systems are structured. Um, and that's necessary and hard in lots of ways. And so um, for those of you who are listening to the podcast and maybe don't know or haven't met us, uh, Scott and I are white, Bailey is black. Uh, and so I, I won't speak for them, but I will say, um, planning for this episode has been unlike other episodes. And I think, you know, my commitment is to be as humble and transparent as I can, knowing that I come to this with a certain perspective. Um, and that perspective needs to change, like that work is never done. And so um, if I start the episode with one idea, and I end it in a different one, hopefully, that means that growth has occurred during this hour. Um, and that uh, we together, you know, that we leave this episode um, in a better place and ideally contribute to the overarching conversations um, in a better way as well. Uh, on that note, I, I think we want to talk about just a quick recap of the usual smattering of Oklahoma politics news from this week before we um, really kind of dig in and, and have this other conversation. Um, Bailey, uh, you, among all three of us, probably follow politics a little closer than the average citizen. Anything that you think is worth highlighting from Oklahoma politics news this week? Yeah, so there's a long-standing conversation. Well, not even conversation. It's a a clashing um, between the governor's office and our tribal nations in the structuring of tribal compacts on gaming. Um, and it's gone to the point where the governor and the, this is a very, very 30,000 foot watered down explanation to help uh, folks understand like the nuts and bolts of um, what's happening, but, um, the compacts are agreements between uh, two governing entities. So tribal nations are governments and they work with the state of Oklahoma to come to an agreement on um, how taxes will be done, um, what types of gaming will be done and all kinds of things that go into those compacts. Um, well, there's discussion on do the compacts renew or do the compacts um, have, well, do the tribal nations negotiate with the governor or does the governor negotiate with the, the tribal nations about what goes into those compacts? And the tribal nations are saying they renew, 
The governor has a different perspective. So now there's a legal battle with that. Um, the governor has worked with a couple of tribal nations. I believe it's the Comanche Nation and one other nation. I can't remember off the top of my head. No. Oto, Missouri. Oto, Missouri. No. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And so those are two um, smaller nations um, that have uh, entered into a compact with the governor. And there's legal... Um, differences on on whether or not that can be a thing. And so uh, the governor is wanting it to go to a federal court. Um, but there are even um, like our attorney general has weighed in, um, leadership in the legislature has weighed in, um, and they're siding with um, the majority of tribes who have a different view than the two tribes who have joined into this compact. And so um, recently, the leadership of the House and the Senate, so the President Pro Tem and the Speaker of the House have filed, um, I guess you can call it a lawsuit uh, against the governor um, saying that the jurisdiction is the Oklahoma Supreme Court and not a federal court to make this ruling about um, this piece of the tribal compact issue. So I think I explained that. Yeah, this whole yep. thing, this whole thing is such a friggin' mess, right? Like, there's like a state lawsuit in state court that's Treat at All versus Stitt, and this is like the the leaders of the state house asking state courts to declare the compacts invalid. Then the governor filed a motion in federal court, basically asking the federal government to declare the opposite. The Department of Interior still hasn't released their decision on the validity of the compacts. The attorney general has said that the attorney general of the state. Uh, A.G. Hunter has said that he doesn't think that they're valid. Um, the House and Senate say that they're not valid because they the compacts allow sports betting, which is currently not legal, um, even though there's some language in the compact that says that would only take place if the legislature allowed it. Um, then they also say that the governor doesn't have the authority to negotiate these. I mean, it's just like this is turned into just a gigantic legal mess. But apparently um, the Oklahoma state Supreme court has scheduled arguments in front of a referee for July 1st. Um, the governor has June until June 25th to respond uh, to, to that, whatever order, I guess, or whatever you call that in legal mm -hmm. lawyer in lawyer terms. I don't know lawyer terms. Um, yeah, that's, it's like the ongoing train wreck that is the relationship between the governor and the leadership of the state legislature. Yeah. I think, I think this is a fascinating deal, right? Cause the, so the compacts are renewed or renegotiated every 15 years, which means that and they haven't done it for most of <laughs> like anyone who's been in legislature was not there the last time these were done. This is why Governor Fallon didn't start to do it because she knew it would be a mess. Right? She left it for Governor Stitt. And and I think it highlights a few things. There's like there's like the news stories and and I say news stories, really it's press releases, right? It's like prepared statements from both sides. Um, and so it's press release versus press release. And so that's the part that most of us see. And then under the surface is the much more nuanced legal stuff, right? Um, Scott, you mentioned the uh, Department of the Interior, the um, whatever the entity is, the Office of Indian Gaming has to rule and they're supposed to, so from the date that the compacts were signed, they have 45 days, I think, to approve or, or not approve them. And that expires on Monday. So we'll actually find out what the federal government says about this in, in one form. Um, by next week. And then, so then there's this backdrop of the state legislature and arguably the AG trying to argue that these are not valid. Now we know like from any lawsuit, right? Each party says whatever they think is true, right? Like they're like, oh no, this is not legal. The other side says it is legal. And so the, as the public, we kind of, I think we watch that and we like, oh, well, there's two of them and there's one of him. So we believe the two people over there, but that is not always the case, which is why it goes to a court. And because these are compacts between the state government and another sovereign entity, right? Then 
and because it involves Indian gaming, there's like a federal component to it. And all this is real murky stuff. Also, like the thing that I've not had a chance to look into yet, but it's like where the money factors into this. Like there's potentially a lot of money involved, right? And so some of the big tribes that are opposed to this are tribes that have big casinos and they kind of have the, you know, um, they have a, a fiscal interest at stake here. And I have a hunch that, you know, if you look at who the big donors are to some of the legislators, well, I'm sure some of the tribes are, right? I mean, Speaker McCall is from Atoka. Um, and uh, when I mean, if you went back and looked at campaign donor, these two tribes that have signed the new, new agreements are not particularly wealthy tribes and so aren't likely ones that have been given money. And so anything that gets political, I always am a little yeah. suspicious of where the money's flowing from. Well, we also have to keep in mind too that um, <clears throat> beyond the money, this is about do we really believe that tribes are sovereign, right? Mm, and we've okay. seen even some comments made by the governor in writing about, you know, we're trying to negotiate with the tribes and they're not doing this and they're not, you know, coming to the table and things like that, um, which comes across as like, you have to deal with Oklahoma. And when, if they're truly sovereign, then there would be a different level of conversation. Cause I think there was even a moment where like the governor sent his lawyers instead of like talking to like the chief directly at some point in the negotiations, which is comes across as a sign of disrespect. That, it like, is disrespectful, right? Like, because well, if, the, if, if the President Trump issue. were to come down to the state, the president's not going to send a representative or an attorney or somebody to go talk to them, right? Like you would be there face to face as leader of a nation. And so I think there is just a level of not understanding what sovereignty looks like and that Oklahomans are really going to have to reconcile that past administrations have understood that this governor is still needing to figure out. Right. Well, and I mean, that was the issue between the governor and the legislature too, right? Like they were mad during budget negotiations that he, they kept saying the governor was never in those meetings. It was his finance secretary or whatever, which was different as we talked about it on the show before about than how previous administrations have done the budget negotiations. And, um, and so I wonder if in some ways the manner in which the governor conducts his business is so different from history that it's rubbing some folks the wrong way. Like I think we're a state that appreciates, you know, looking someone in the eye and sitting down with them uh, about the the conversation. Well, yeah. and understanding that like the, the governor is the chief, you know, he is the, the chief executive to some extent of the state, but he's, he is the leader of one co-equal branch, right? right. Like, um, and, and, um, He's, you know, he's not the only statewide elected official, right? Um, there are lots of other people in government that are also statewide elected officials. Those people don't necessarily report to him. Um, you know, they report to the people that elected them. Um, and and sometimes he seems like he under doesn't always understand that. Uh, well, and yeah. so if if Street <clears throat> and McCall have a different perspective, then that means that. Oklahoma government isn't on the same page, or if, right. if the attorney general has a different perspective, then that means Oklahomans aren't on the same page, or Oklahoma is not on the same page um, and where we should stand with the compacts. And so I think that's an important point to raise, Scott, that like this may be his perspective from the executive, but it's not the perspective of Oklahoma since he's just one piece of co-equal branches. And it's remarkable when you consider that they're from the same party. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, like the, the dissonance there. Absolutely. Hey y'all is, uh, is coronavirus still a thing? <laughs> is the Rona still, is the Rona still around? The Rona is still around. Yeah. It is. I'm only, I'm only, I'm only asking cause, uh, I don't know if anybody is, if you guys are, if anybody else follows this at home, but for those playing the home game, there's no, 
no new coronavirus case data today. Uh, apparently, there's a technical glitch at the website. Yeah. I don't think that this has anything to do with the fact that the seven-day average of cases is climbing dramatically, as is the number of hospitalizations this week. I'm not saying that those two things are related. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that if you look at the seven-day moving average of numbers, the number of tests we're running daily looks relatively constant. The number of positive cases is on an upswing over the last several days. And the number of hospitalizations, when you look at the graph, it's like a little set of stairs just going up for the last for the last week i think it's too early to say whether this is a like a second spike or a second wave or what have you um oklahoma remains at or near the bottom of u.s states in terms of number of people total affected and how severe our epidemic has been um which is good unequivocally um but uh yeah the at the moment you know we'll see how data looks over the next week or so but at the moment um i'm I'm a little nervous. I had dropped well, it like five of out of data. ten. <laughs> well, but speaking of data, though, like the um, Oklahoma State Department of Health was preparing to not release yeah. um, data that was um, broken so they, down. Right? So they weren't going to release uh, cases by zip code, by municipality, or right. by a specific uh, long-term care facility, which is... They were saying that the only reason they could do that before was because one of the things Chipa. the government did with Chipa was waive or suspend a statute that allowed them to a privacy statute that allowed them to publish that data. And they're saying that now that Chipa is gone, they couldn't do it. A.G. Hunter weighed in uh, and wrote an opinion saying, yeah, you can, <laughs> you can, yeah. you can, you can release that data. So they said they're going to, but, at, but today we don't have new case data um, because of a, a technical glitch. So, but I do want to lift, you know, the important role that our journalists play in lifting, yeah. you know, what's going on because they were the ones that brought it to light that hey, this change is about to happen. We're only going to have county level data, and so if we don't have the accurate understanding of where the cases are, then how can we, you know, report on what's going on? What different you municipalities should be doing, you know, in in this time of COVID, and so. Was Paul, um, Paul Money is over at Oklahoma Watch, right? Is the one who, yeah, yeah who him Paul. and I believe some folks at the Frontier and several others were really raising that issue. And so, just thanks for that. Um, what I call that fourth branch of government for, right. for staying the watch. A free, but, uh, a free press, free is a beautiful thing. Yeah, but I think this will be a good time to transition into our conversation about racism because I think there is an assumption too that because of the folks who are putting their bodies on the front lines to protest injustice, that they are the reason that cases are spiking. And I wanna make sure that our listeners aren't uh, contributing to that narrative that we need to blame protesters for um, spikes in COVID cases. Um, it's really fascinating. I believe it was the frontier that was interviewing folks about why are they you know, showing up protesting during a pandemic and their response was, you know, yes, you know, we're not comfortable with the pandemic, but our lives and our bodies are on the line, you know, just as, you know, scary and more scary than um, this virus that has been taking so many lives across the world. And so I think that's really telling about the impact of systemic racism and how it's had that impact on the black community. Yeah. And uh, Scott and I actually attended the the rally on last Saturday here um, together with some other friends. And Sunday. both of us remarked the Sunday, Sunday. Sunday. Um, Sunday, all the days run together now. Oh. Um, yes, last Sunday. And we both uh, noticed pretty quick and remarked that how many people had masks on like it was hot out there. Um, but it was a way higher percentage than I've seen at any store that I've been in in the last several weeks. Um, and I think that was, that was pretty remarkable. Um, just that alone and, you know, shout out to groups that are supplying masks and trying to, um, trying to do that. Uh, that I think there's a, a an awareness about, about the pandemic still being there, but, but this is racism has been going on and has killed, you know, untold thousands of people 
uh, and we've got to find a way to to combat both of these. And as we said earlier, right? Like this is this highlights a huge intersection um, in our society um, where race and racism influences our public health policy in really dramatic ways, right? Well, um, COVID is a story of racism too, right? When you mm -hmm. look at data across the country about who's disproportionately affected by COVID, it's black, black and brown people um, because black and brown folks are the ones who are most likely to be in the bottom rung frontline jobs of like the grocery store workers, like janitors, things like that, to where they're on the front lines having to be around different places. And so they're in spaces where they're more likely to, to contract COVID, right? Um, there's also deficiencies in getting adequate healthcare. <laughs> and there's so much data about that among black and brown folks. And so even just the story of COVID is a story about racism. And I think that, I think what happened with George Floyd being murdered by the police officer, you know, was the, the trigger point to activate the, the protest. But there's already a lot of frustration about the dynamics and, and impact of COVID that compounds the, the issues and how it brings them together. And so I would say the, the marches and the protests and things that are happening are, are bigger than just what happened with George Floyd, but it's these ideas of stru structural systemic racism and public health um, and uh, wealth disparities. Because there's a lot of things that go into why what happened to George Floyd happened and it's all at the systems level. Yeah, just if I can to like to piggyback on that, something that, you know, has been on, you know, my mind, I mean, certainly the last two weeks, but even, you know, throughout the coronavirus pandemic, as we've seen that, like, you know, communities of color are disproportionately impacted. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt. I think it, I think at the beginning, we didn't have enough data to see that, but as we've gotten more data and it's become really clear that that's the case. Um, and just to, to echo what you're saying, Bailey, I mean, like you think about all the things that we ask people to do, right. To stay home, to not go to the store, you know, if you can't get your groceries delivered, if you can work from home, if you could do, I mean, like to even be able to like, to be able to isolate, <laughs> right. To be able to isolate is privilege. Like that's privilege at work. And that's something that, I mean, if you just take a step back, I think it becomes incredibly obvious to see that, but that was never a part of like the conversation, right? And, and Scott, with that, when you think about health disparities and the reasons that people were supposed to stay home, so the immunocompromised, right? Those who have asthma, those who have diabetes or certain um, conditions, who are the folks who are more likely to have that? Right. Black and brown folks. And why is that? because of some of its environmental issues, if the areas that they live in, you know, having to breathe in, you know, air that's not the cleanest or think about the folks in Flint or beyond Flint, because it's more than Flint. Flint received a lot of attention, um, but not having clean water to drink or people who live in food deserts and can't get access to adequate and nutritious meals. And so they're going to convenience stores because that's the closest place they have for miles away, right? So a lot of those things contribute to, or you don't have the money to be able to see a doctor for preventative care because you work in a place that doesn't offer you insurance coverage, right? And so a lot of those folks are also the people who are immunocompromised, but in order to feed their families, they got to show up on the front lines, right? And right. so there isn't really a space for them to have that privilege to be able just to stay home and they, they have to be out there on the front lines. And, and the craziest thing is that George Floyd had coronavirus. Coronavirus didn't kill this man. Yeah. Yeah. It was a police officer putting his knee in his neck for eight minutes. So, I mean, even jo George Floyd is like a, a case study about how these worlds are colliding about, you know, public health and police brutality and um, systemic racism and in all of these different conversations, public health, all of it. And I'll, I'll even say too, to, to 
putting this, you can probably quote these. I'm going to say you can quote these numbers better than I can. But like, even when you're talking about access to healthcare, even once access to healthcare has been achieved, there are still dramatic disparities among communities of color in the outcomes that they have and yes. the way they get treated by healthcare professionals, doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, and nurses, right? Um, I mean, I think it affects. Um, I have my own personal it, stories, and I'm, you know, an educated black, and I say that in quotations, like black woman. And I've had, I have several stories of um, being dismissed by my health professionals in ways that really could have put my life in danger. So it's, it's real. It's so real. Continue. I'm sorry. No, that's, I mean, that's you, you keep going. <laughs> that's all like, that's all I was going to say because I can't, I, I like, I, I know that that's true. And I know that I know that's true. And I know that happens. I, I don't have the like, num I want to say it's like, I want to say black women in particular are more like two and a half times more likely to have their like pain under treated to have um, inadequate, like, not, and I don't want to say inadequate prenatal care in terms of access. I want to say like, even once they've have, have uh, gotten access to prenatal care, it's not delivered well, right? right. Um, they have worse outcomes in terms of childbirth, um, both for themselves and for their children. Um, I mean, and the list goes on. The maternal mortality rate is, is stupid high for black women um, who are wealthy. Beyonce had issues having her baby. Serena Williams had issues, you know, when uh, she was giving birth. Um, so it doesn't even matter if you're rich or you're educated, um, you have a super high rates of maternal mortality. A lot of it is related to stress on the body that you have to deal with. You know, mm -hmm. something that we talked about on a nonprofit call was like, you know, we're hearing and seeing all of these things that aren't just things that happen to like our grandparents and great grandparents, the things that are happening right now. And we're having to wear those on our shoulders and then show up, you know, to our jobs and show up, you know, in public spaces. Um, and all of that wears and tears on the body. And so there are different things. You can be a healthy black woman eating all the right things and you still have a high likelihood um, of experiencing maternal mortality. And so a lot of these things are policies, they're systems from things that happened 400 years ago that are still impacting us today because there are still a lot of things, um, like a lot of those inequities um, through the systems that we built haven't been adequately addressed over time. And so we've been putting um, Band-Aids on these problems. And now we're seeing the issues continue to fester from um, the wealth gap to where people live in communities, right? Because um, that determines, you know, are, are you going to breathe clean air? <laughs> um, are you going to have adequate transportation? Um, so. I mean, it's just so many things related to to these intersectional systems that lead us to where people are and being at a point of taking that frustration to the streets and, and protesting. Um, there was a woman, Kimberly Jones, she had a video on Facebook and she was talking so passionately and she said something that really resonated with me. She said the social contract is broken. She said, mm -hmm. the expectation is something bad happens. We call law enforcement to protect us in those moments. But then when we call law enforcement to protect us and like, you know, implement order, they're killing us. So that social contract of the expectation of somebody's protecting and serving us has been broken time after time after time after time because we've seen so many stories from, um, oh my gosh, so many people that I can list, so many hashtags, all the hashtags over time. And we see folks get administrative leave or they get out on a technicality or even here in Oklahoma with Betty Shelby um, getting put into another administrative job, training people after she shot Terrence Crutcher, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you have a lot of folks who are, because there is a lot of, well, why are people looting? And I don't understand why are they tearing up communities? Kimberly brought up another point. Many of the black areas of town are even owned by black people, right? <laughs> so going to the, the wealth gap conversation, um, a lot of ownerships within 
communities and, and areas where black folks live aren't even owned by black people. So it's like we're not even tearing up our own stuff <laughs> or, yeah. or, you know, with the with the protests happening. And so um, there's just a lot of levels that um, are going to take folks doing a lot of reading and understanding of uh, what's happened over time that's leading us to this moment that isn't about somebody who didn't follow the law because it came out that that $20 bill was actually real, right? <laughs> or even if he did do something wrong, if you truly believe in the constitution, right? It has sections about due process in them and unarmed black folks being murdered by police is not due process. So that social contract that Kimberly was talking about has been broken and people are tired because what do you do if the people who are supposed to help solve the issues and, and, and give justice are the ones murdering folks? You take it to yeah. the streets. So that's what fuels where we are. Yeah. I, I watched her video this morning um, as well. And it, I will, in fact, I will link it in the show notes for this episode because I mean, it's a two minute clip and she hit so many good points. Like she said, you know, she's like, what do I care if Target gets destroyed? Like, what, what is that doing for me? And I can, you know, I think as a white person who goes to Target twice a week, right? Like that's the kind of idea. Um, I think her phrasing, I hope like, has it resonate with a lot of people where it's like, if like, what does it really matter? Right? Like if, if, if people are, you know, they want to say someone's doing the wrong thing, uh, like, well, they shouldn't have been doing it. They're breaking the law. Well, okay. Well, the, the punishment for breaking the law is not death, right? Like in, in the vast majority of, of cases, arguably it should not be death in any case, but that's a, it's another conversation, but that's been the result for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unarmed black men and you know the and, women. That, and women and women yeah yeah because uh, brianna taylor's, taylor's birthday, birthday is today, today. she yeah. was and that gets me especially as a black woman she was sleeping in mm -hmm. her bed in her home and they entered the home wrongly because they got the wrong person it should have been anybody, but they killed her. She was sleeping and they killed her, right? Mm -hmm. um, people are, are livid. They're fucking mad. <laughs> yeah. and, and we have to put more attention on the fact that these things are happening more so than caring about a window being broken because a window can be repaired. That's why businesses have insurance, right? Mm -hmm. These mm -hmm. lives can't be brought back. The... Um, psychological toll that's being put on black folks, our babies who are watching this. I mean, I'm gonna try not to get emotional because this really hey, gets you, me. You, like, you get emotional. The <laughs> my six year old stepdaughter was watching because you you just can't avoid you know what's happening because I mean, sadly, I mean it was just like the civil rights movement, right? People had to see the peaceful protesters get bit by dogs and hit by water hose and things like that to even get a sense of humanity, right? And to see like these things are really happening to folks. And so we have to see what's happening in these images to keep it on people's minds to have that accountability. Um, but she said, what, what is going on on the TV? And my fiance and I had to explain to her at six years old that sometimes there are people who are going to look at your brown skin and be mean to you. You know, they're, they're going to treat you differently because you look different. They're going to be scared of you because you're darker. Right. Um, and sometimes that policeman's supposed to help you, but sometimes they may hurt you. Right. That was a, I, I cried. I cried that night. I, there's a lot of black folks who haven't rested. I've been going to sleep at night, but I haven't been resting, right? And we've had to show up to work and, and, and do the things that we're supposed to do on every day while having um, these, these moments rest on our, our, our hearts and our souls, right? Um, and one of my um, sorority sisters is a naturopathic doctor. 
and she posted in one of our um, groups in Facebook about how stress impacts the body. Black folks have so much stress that they're carrying for all of these different, because of the, what racism does to us on a day to day, that it's triggering, you know, high blood pressure. It's triggering, <laughs> you know, our, our bodies to, to, to interact in these different ways. And so, um, and I told her, I said, when she shared the video about like how stress impacts the body, I was like, this is literally going to kill a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, and, and they're, they're going to live shorter lifespans. Like, yeah. And like you said earlier about how it affects generations, right? So there's like the, the field of epigenetics studies this too, yeah. where there was a, a big study where like a, a famine hit a community and I don't remember who it was, but the, and it, it made physiological changes in them, right? Like it was like a long famine and it carried forward four generations. Like they could find genetic markers of that famine for four generations. Um, and I've thought about that a lot this week of, um, you know, what has happened for hundreds of years. And it, it wasn't like it happened and then it got better, <laughs> right? Like racism has continued. And, and so as that stress, uh, as that violence, as those things have continued to happen, we, we see it carried out. And, you know, I, in, in, in my work, like in healthcare, you know, we would have lots of conversations about um, generational stuff with Native American communities. Like it was, you know, we'd have they'd come up in conferences and that was always like a workshop about it. Um, but I, I started thinking about that a lot in yeah. terms of the black community, right? Where- Well, and, and for the, the, the intersectionality, Native Americans have a high rate of police brutality against them. Yeah. yeah. I believe it's just as high, if not higher against um, American Indians. And so yeah. um, it's, 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 sorry, continue, continue. No, no. But I mean, it's this, it's happening to a lot of communities of color. Well, yeah. you know, and you're talking, to, you know, you're talking about having that conversation with your niece and just for the record, I'm just, I don't have anything to say other than I'm like, I'm sorry. It's not good enough. Um, I can't imagine. I don't have kids. I don't have like young nieces and nephews yet. Young nieces and nephews, and I can't imagine having to have that conversation um, and what that experience is like for you, but also for her. You know, um, as we're talking about like, you know, trauma, and I think that I mean I think that's what this is, right? Like I think that's like this is for for our communities of color. This is this is generational trauma that started before they were born that continues after they're born um there's this is um trauma is an area that i've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years learning about just because i'm interested in it it's something my wife works with also my work as a pediatrician it's very like has a lot of influence there um and as one of the first resources that i um encountered it's a book um it has nothing to do with systemic racism at least not directly um, by a guy named Bessel van der Kolk, who's a psychiatrist at Harvard. Um, he wrote this book called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic read for anyone who finds this kind of stuff interesting. Um, and it's written for a lay audience. Like, it's not too technical. Um, but, I mean, the, the physiologic changes that happen to people, even starting before we're born, like the changes that happen in brain development, the changes that happen in our stress responses with just kind of long-term chronic stress. And I mean, that can be witness domestic violence. It can be long-term poverty. It can be a huge component is failure for healthy attachment in our early infancy. Um, but like one of the, I, you know, one of the things that I've just have been thinking about kind of like Andy said, like the last couple of weeks is like this, generational, multi-generational systemic and structural racism that these kids start experiencing, like, just from asking questions, right? From like from what's happening on the TV and that forces this conversation that, that I don't, I don't, I, I don't really have like words <laughs> other than that. Um, this just, yeah, I can't, I mean, it's, yeah. When I was about eight or nine, my brother was about 
five or six at the time, we watched my father be harassed by police. Um, we were scared that my dad was going to be a hashtag that night. And he was just, because my parents were divorced, so my dad parked um, between two schools just to stop and talk to us. And the officer came up um, and was aggressively asking my dad to get out the car, like doing things that violated his rights. And my dad knew what his rights are, right? Um, and he kept pushing back, like, no, why do I need to get out the car? Why do you need to do this? And then it turned into seven police officers. And we were so scared. And that moment still sticks in mind because my dad says that we kept asking, like, Daddy, why didn't you just do what he said? And he was like, because it wasn't right. And then growing up, we're seeing moments where black people did the right thing, the thing that they were supposed to do to save their lives. And then like Philando Castile, mm -hmm. who did the right thing and was trying to show the officer his concealed weapon that he was legally able to carry, get murdered in his car in front of his wife and kid, right? Black children are seeing that regularly. And we're, now we're seeing it you know, on TV with these different moments. And so um, you're right, Scott, that that trauma is being passed down and kids are seeing it firsthand and, and having to, to function without even having adequate access to mental health treatment. So, I mean, the system overall is inadequately funded in Oklahoma, but it's especially um, inadequate for, for people of color who are facing um, high rates of ACEs just from the experiences of racism alone, right? I um, wanted to kind of shift into talking about what we can do to help, um, to, to help shift this country into the right gear. Um, and I, I will say like, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do here in our house uh, is read, you know, um, and so, like, I mean, it, the top selling books on like every bookstore platform, Amazon and everything else are all about like race and policing, which is super like, that's exciting. And I hope that that um, continues, right? Um, so if you bought a book and your friend isn't able to read it and pass it to them or share it or, you know, something. Um, and a lot of people are setting up book clubs and um, that's great. Um, we also bought some books on racism for our kids. Um, so I have, I have two kids from a previous marriage and then, and then we have, a, we have baby Margot who obviously can't read cause she's just four months old. But, um, but there's a, there's a, a board book about racism that we've already pre-ordered, um, for that reason. Right. Um, so Wednesday night, I was having dinner with my kids, with the two older ones. My daughter's six, my son is eight. And I, you know, said, hey, you guys are, I know what's going on with protests and stuff, right? And to kind of find out what they knew um, from, you know, they see stuff on the news and see what their mom had, had shared with them. And so we had a little conversation in the car while we ate our chicken strips um, <laughs> before we went to the park. And my son kind of had an idea and my daughter was like, didn't really get it. And she's, she just completed kindergarten. And so, you know, her exposure to the world is very narrow and they live in Edmond, which is a even more narrow exposure to the world. And one of her um, best friends and plays on her soccer team is uh, a black girl. And she said, you know, like, well, she has brown skin. And I said, yeah. And she said, you know, are the police going to kill her? And I was like, oh man, right? Like um, it made it hit home and it wasn't, I was like, I can't say no, right? I mean, right. You know, I said, I hope, I hope not, but let's talk about that. And then for the rest of our time, like, you know, they were keenly aware of wherever a police officer was around us as we, as we drove through Edmond. Um, and, you know, it was a conversation that, I realized in that moment, it was a conversation that I had hoped or maybe never expected to have with my kids. And I was also realizing that her friend's parents have probably already had that conversation with her, right? Like what, what, see, what seemed very unusual to me from my experience is likely the norm, 
you know, for, for many black families. And that was one of those little ways that made it hit home. Um, and, and so I, that is not the only conversation that we will have with the kids about that. Um, but I think it, it highlights like, nah, it's hard for me to like try and even figure out where to start. Right. Um, and so, well, and, and Andy, I'll add a few things because in addition to like what we read, it's even about what we do in action, right? Mm -hmm. So it is reading so we can get a better understanding to challenge our mindsets because um, when we're educated, even in the public school systems and just educating in, in America, we're taught about things through a lens of patriotism Mm -hmm. that fuel biased and have um, blinders to things that have happened in our country that impact today. I can't tell you how many times I hear people not knowing that the Tulsa race massacre happened and we yeah. hit the 99th anniversary of it, right? Um, there's so many people who don't understand, you know, that it's not just about that black person didn't work hard enough, therefore they're not a doctor or they're not um, making a living wage to take care of their families, right? Um, so there's a lot of things beyond just like educating ourselves that we need to do. So even just thinking about like how we stand up um, in the workplace and having these conversations. Uh, so a lot of things related to addressing justice we've allowed folks to politicize. And so the second that we talk about the things that are necessary to help unroot racism, it suddenly becomes, oh no, that's a political conversation. I don't wanna to touch that around um, the, the, um, the dinner table or in the workplace or whatever. Um, but the reality is black folks don't have the luxury of comfort, right? We're uncomfortable all the time. I mean the way my hair is now, it, like it, it took me a long time to get here because I was scared to do that, to have my hair like this as a person who lobbies at the Oklahoma State Capitol because it's a majority white male body and I didn't want them to be afraid of me or look at me in a certain way, but this is the way the hair grows on my head. And there are little black girls who are getting suspended from school because there were policies in place that said, if you have your hair like this, if you have your hair braided, it's not professional. That's saying that the way my hair is, is unacceptable, right? And so mm -hmm. those are things that we got to challenge. So whenever we hear somebody saying something that's you know off kilter, we need to nip that, we need to address that, right? It's mm -hmm. time to stop making people feel comfortable. It's a time to um, start standing for things that um, will help change you know, biased frameworks. So you know, if you're at a school and they have a policy about hair, speaking up and talking about it, getting that changed, right? Um, if uh, you're in a workplace and they're not talking about certain things or you notice that like their entire board is all white <laughs> or you notice that like, yeah, they got a lot of black and brown people, but they're all the people working minimum wage jobs, right? We need to challenge those things and we need to hold people accountable. Um, and it takes our white peers doing that because they're in the spaces of power and influence. And so uh, once we do the reading and we are building understanding, we also have to do the work of being willing to help put our bodies and um, our, um, I mean, I won't say reputations on the line for justice because sometimes it's, it's uncomfortable. Like. I'm scared to say it to that person because you know he's president of this company or he does this. It's it's really time for people to to have to hit these things you know head on and have those uncomfortable conversations um, to help stand up for or like think about like organizations that are out here doing the work. You know, take time to lift them up. You know, the Black Lives Matter chapters across the country. We have a Black Lives Matter chapter in Oklahoma. Um, you know, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, there's several other organizations out there that are helping to represent people, to bring justice, to bring equality to our world. You know, consider donating and supporting their efforts and their work. 
Um, I, I know in the beginning you mentioned that you both went out to the protest and that's amazing. Um, and so we need people to show up continuously, even in how we vote. We're voting for people who are maintaining the status quo and systems, right? <laughs> and so it's even participating in what's going on at the city council level, at the state level, and at you know the federal level, and connecting these policies to how they maintain structural racism, right? And calling those things a thing. And so there's a lot of work that's gonna be really uncomfortable, especially for folks who live in a very conservative state, um, to be able to, to call a thing a thing and work towards really changing these frameworks. But it's gonna take continuous work and effort in order for us to do it. Really, right. there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, we're, we're talking about like, you know, kind of doing this work, I think, you know, and Andy pointed to this and so do you, that I think there's also a lot of like, there's a lot of internal work that has to be done, especially on the part of the white community, right? Yeah. To come to terms with this. There's, you know, there are people, um, there's people that I follow mostly on Instagram that have been kind of pointing the way for me that I've learned a lot from. There's a lot of yeah. like, book, there are a lot of uh, different like book and reading lists like floating around. Are there any, are there any specific resources that you would point anyone to, but I'll just come right out and say it, specifically that you would point white people to that are that need to like explore this and enter kind of the uncomfortable world of coming to terms with this and doing that kind of internal work so that they they get to a point where they're having these conversations that you're talking about that they're pushing these policies that you're mentioning that they're changing maybe their voting behavior like how what are some do you have and if you don't hit that's okay <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. do you have I any mean you can point people to, to, to get there? There are so many resources out there. So it's even just figuring out which ones are great. So um, the 1619 okay. project in the New York Times is a great one to explore um, the roots of how systems have been built in this country, especially on the backs of black and brown folks um, to then give you that that contextual understanding of like, oh, why are black people still talking about slavery, right? Um, I would say hmm, the new Jim Crow by Michelle Allen is a great one um, to understand um, the intersectionalities of like, when folks talk about like criminal justice policy and how that um, adds another layer of um, complications for Black folks because, I mean, that's a whole other um, podcast like discussion in itself about you know the the racism within how we do criminal justice. Um, but we have folks that get out of the system and they want to find a job, but people won't hire them, right? Um, they want to live in communities. But um, white folks are like, I don't feel comfortable about somebody having a record living next door to me, right? So they can't even live somewhere where they can get a fresh start and be safe. Um, there are places that like there's limitations on things that they can. So we, we almost set people up to fail when they live, when they leave the, the prison system. So that's another great uh, read on that. I would say, um, what would be another one? Um, white Fragility by Robin D'Angelo and How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. So those are a few good reads initially to um, understand concepts, to get a historical framework and context about what we're talking about and why it's just bigger than um, George Floyd. Why it's bigger than they broke a window, <laughs> right? Um, to get that understanding of the, the rage black people feel on a day-to-day -day basis because of the systems that they have to encounter every day. If, if I could, there's also one, um, Austin Channing's book. Um, so she has a book called I'm Still Here. Um, she's, mm -hmm. uh, um, and her, I would say her Instagram, I follow a lot of the folks that you just mentioned, those authors and their work. Um, Austin Channing on her Instagram profile right now is, is, She's ha she's posting every day like new resources and new um, 
just stuff for people to yeah. explore and go through this. So I would, I might add that one to your list, but you're, uh, I think that's fantastic. Thank you for yeah. that. No, and I have one more, the color of law. Mm -hmm. So that's another mm -hmm. great one to understand um, how all of this intersects into public policy, because it's not somebody said the N word that offended me. This is about like a lot of deep rooted policy that makes it hard for people to experience true equality and what it means, you know, to be an American in the way that we defined it and why black folks are left out of that framework. Right. So yeah. I think the color of law would be another great one to read. Yeah. And in the, in the show notes for this episode, I will, uh, I will also link there's that um, Google document that's been shared a whole bunch. Um, I've seen a lot of different people and it has, it's a long list of, resources, articles, videos, podcasts, books, films and TV series, organizations to follow on social media, and then just other lists of ways to be anti-racist. Um, uh, looks like compiled by Sarah Sophie Flicker, Alyssa Klein in May of this year. So um, I know they're still adding to it, but I'll, I'll drop that in the show notes as well. Cause I, there's a lot of those books that you guys mentioned. There's links to them on there um, and some other stuff that's, I think, really helpful. Yeah. Well, and I, I'll just remind our listeners, you know, it is important to read these resources and to um, help retool our minds around these issues. Um, but we also have to take those steps beyond that. It's so important because putting up a, a Black Lives Matter frame around your picture on Facebook, um, you know, making a public statement from your, from your uh, business saying Black Lives Matter, you know, is not enough. Because if the things that we're doing still perpetuate the status quo and the systems that we're doing, you know, it's performative. And so we have to take those opportunities to think daily of what can I do to help unroot these systems? And I mean, what, what, what is my part in the freedom work, right? Um, yeah. What can I do on my job? What can I do in my sphere of influence? What are things that can I can do to help in these conversations and this work to fight injustice? So. Yeah, I, um, this, this might sound silly and please tell me if it is, but I've been thinking about how to talk about this to white people also, right? And, <laughs> And everyone talks about their hobbies, right? And I, it occurred to me yesterday while I was walking around, um, I was like, "What if I, what if people talked about being anti-racist as a hobby?" Now that that minimizes it some, and I don't love that. But the idea that like, if you love something, you will try to find ways to do it all the time, and that is something well, not I'm even a, not a hobby, but it's a part yeah. of who we are. Because if it's right. a part of who we are in the way that we say I'm American, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Then it is something that we can embody in our day to day to help us change our, our frame of reference and what we do and how we show up for other people. So I, I get what you're saying, but I think even framing it as if we make it a part of who we are and our identity in the way that like when we write a bio, we're talking about, you know, who we are. Mm -hmm. I'm working to be anti-racist. And I'm working to fight racist systems. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's the way yeah. we have to think about it. Yeah. This. So it, it came. It, the thought came to me. Uh, um, I'm a runner, right? So I identify as a as a runner, and um, and I think that's. I guess that's a hobby. The people identify it as like part of their identity in many cases, and so yes, you said it much better than me. But um, that thing that it's something that you think about, you do about all the time, every day. Um, and you try to get better at it. And I, and I think that's a commitment to this that matters way more than, than running or whatever it is someone might do, but this can make real change in our world. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Any, uh, we're about out of time. Any final thoughts from either of you? I mean, I, I don't know, like, I, uh, I, I feel like, you know, I mean, even as a, like, as a white, 
as a white man, you know, we're seeing these horrific things that have been happening for years, you know, and like we've, you know, Andy, you and I were talking before we started that, you know, I don't know if, I don't know, I think it probably it's that they're, they're a lot more visible to the larger community now because of social media and because we all walk around with a, a video phone in our pocket. Um, obviously it's been happening. It's been happening for decades and <laughs> for centuries. Um, and I, I just, I hope that maybe we're going to take, I hope that maybe we're going to, we're reaching an inflection point, a turning point. Um, I don't know. I don't know that anybody can say that we are, or that we're not. Um, but I just, I hope we are. I mean, I, I'm going to do everything that I can to, to make sure that it's a, that it's a turning point. Um, and I hope, I hope that that's, I hope that's where it goes. I don't know. I'm, that's really all that's on my mind at the moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and there's a lot of folks who are hurting out there. Um, the worst thing we can do is center the conversation on looted property or, you know, protests being peaceful. Like this is trauma that's been built up for a long, long time. We have to come to a place of understanding why people are turning to the methods that they are. So it's not about whether I agree or disagree. It's about what can we do to stop police killings of black folks? What can we do to combat the wealth gap? What can we do to change health outcomes to ensure that Black folks aren't feeling the brunt of a lot of these health disparities, right? All of these things intersect and they take all of us understanding these issues, but also all of us pushing back on it, but then also knowing that like now is not the time to ask your black friends to help you do the work right um so giving them that space to to be able to to process and then figuring out ways to help show up for them is is important so yeah yeah i'd Thank say you. let's leave it there <laughs> uh, and thanks, don't Bailey. share Candace Owen stuff. <laughs> I'll throw that out there too. She's not helpful. <laughs> we don't speak for black folks. So definitely don't tell somebody black, but she has a point because that's the best way to, to get somebody riled up. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's true. That's a true story. All right. Uh, thank you both for being here. Bailey, thanks as always for being here. Yes. Thanks for sharing. Scott, thank you as well. You can follow uh, Bailey at Bailey M. Perkins. Uh, Scott is at SC Melson. I'm at Andy OKC. You should also go follow uh, a bunch of other organizations that I will drop in our show notes. But people like the Anti-Racism Center, which is on Twitter at Anti-RacismCTR. Uh, NAACP is at you know, NAACP. That one's a good one. Um, the uh, and there's about a dozen more in this list. Um, as I said earlier in the show, I will I will link this list in the show notes for this episode. So on whatever app you're listening to it, you should be able to expand the, the notes there and it'll be close to the top. Um, and it's called Anti-Racism Resources. Um, Let's Pod This is a uh, part of the Mostly Harmless Media Network based here in Oklahoma. Our theme music is provided by artist So Down. It's a track called Rhino Funk. We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with the government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. And friends, now's the time to show up. Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>